0: The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries
1: of ordinary.
2: Kevin had some experience sailing hobies when he was growing up. and I, my mom had a sailboat, but I wasn't really into sailing. And we started thinking about boats while we were on our airstream in a marina campground, looking at boats, going, hey, boats, why haven't we ever thought about boats? And so then we started looking and got really interested in the whole sort of airstreaming on the water idea. And about a month later, we had a boat.
1: Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers and doers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. Episode Lucky Number 13. I am your host, Becky Saltzman, and in today's episode, we explore the location independent lifestyle. Okay, what's that? Location independence is a relatively new concept which refers to the freedom to work and live from wherever you want. Now, some of us still go into the office every day. Many of us have become, however, untethered from our office. Maybe we were laid off, or maybe we chose to leave a traditional office job or career, or perhaps we never had an office to begin with. But as a lifestyle movement, this is fairly new because with advancements in technology, there are finally jobs that can be done from anywhere. And this is afforded those who are curious an opportunity to consider location independence as an option that would fulfill a desire to be an architect of our own destiny and to have the ability to live life on our own terms. Today we take a peek into what it's like to live a location independent lifestyle with two of my favorite people on the entire planet, Laura Domola and Kevin Morris. Laura and Kevin spend most of their time aboard airship. A 34-foot Nordic tugboat they travel the inside passage to Alaska spending five month stretches exploring British Columbia and Southeast Alaska and they spend much of the winter months cruising around the San Juan Islands Gulf Islands and Puget Sound Laura and Kevin have always been big fans of going places in 2003 they founded the first online engineering publication electronic engineering journal and this plays an important role because in deciding to start the first online technical journal this was a big risk this kind of thing had not been done but they strategically looked at forming the kind of business that would allow them to travel anywhere and continue to work from anywhere they bought their first airstream in 2005. Kevin managed their growing EE Journal and Laura created the well-known location independent blog Riveted Blog while they traveled the US and Canada in their Airstream. Laura was born in Anchorage, Alaska and she grew up in Southern California where she camped all over the western United States and sailed all around Southern California. She is an artist and photographer and amazing talent, I might add, and you can and should check out her incredible work at domela.com. She photographs and writes about their boating travels at slowboat.com. Check that out too. Laura is most excited about inspiring other people to craft the lives they wish for and They put their money where their mouth is. Kevin grew up flying small airplanes with his parents, camping and road tripping in their camper truck, and sailing Hobie cats with his brother. Kevin is an engineer, an amazing writer, boater, pilot, entrepreneur, and admittedly my favorite deckhand. He was born and raised in Texas and has called Portland, Oregon his official home for the last 30 years. Kevin believes that everyone can and should craft their life around their passions, finding or creating work that matches their interests and lifestyle. They realize that blogging about travel can often look all fun all the time, but from what you hear and what you'll learn in this episode, it's not. Although they do make a pretty strong case for how wonderful living and working on a boat can be. This lifestyle, not only running your own business, but doing so from the road or the water, is not for everyone. It's full of risks, stress, pressure, and an enormous amount of responsibility. And from what you will hear, they wouldn't trade it for the world. In this episode, you'll learn how they created this lifestyle. You'll also learn how you can do it too. You'll learn that despite what everyone suggests, it's not about luck. Anytime that we look with envy at someone who's living an unconventional lifestyle, it's good to elevate curiosity. Is the lifestyle that you're living one that was chosen for you? Maybe by default or expectations or unexpected circumstances, or is it a lifestyle that you have decidedly chosen for yourself? Are you aiming for the lifestyle that you want? Living on a boat or in an airstream combines at least two major lifestyle choices, location independence and the new and growing small space living lifestyle choice. Most of the choices we make in life are not as strategically engineered as they seem, but some are. So we find out what decisions Kevin and Laura made that were pivotal in creating a location-independent lifestyle. We talk about what an average day on the boat looks like, not that there's actually an average day. And we talk about the minimalist lifestyle, what stuff is most important, or what do they miss, or whether they wish they had gotten rid of, or... What do they wish that they hadn't gotten rid of? And how in the world they get along when they're stuck in such a small space with one another for such a long time. We talk about the differences between the airstream and boating cultures, and we talk about the best way to learn about boating and how you can join a flotilla. We talk about what it's like to have a conference call interrupted by a pod of whales or a sleuth of grizzlies. I hope you enjoy this episode with my dear friends. Laura and Kevin as much as I did. And I hope that this gives you just a little peek inside a lifestyle that's different, but perhaps an option. Please enjoy this episode with Laura Domola and Kevin Morris. Hi guys, I am so excited that you are here, finally off the boat and on land where I can find out all about what's going on with you.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's been kind of weird not being on the boat anymore and being on floors that stand still instead of Mm -hmm. slowly
1: rocking back and forth. Uh, Do you have landlubber disorder or something? Occasionally
2: when we get home, I get for a few days, I, uh, I have a little vertigo. Like it's called, I think there's a name for it, but it's like you adjust too well to being on a boat. And then when you get on land, you get start getting vertigo, and it's like land sickness.
1: It's like the reverse of seasickness. Oh, my God. I can only I imagine. I, know, I can only weird. imagine. Well, I was thinking about the fact that living on a boat or in an airstream kind of involves two different lifestyle choices. It melds two. One is the small space lifestyle choice, and the other is location independence. And a lot of the decisions that we make or the lifestyles that we choose seem to be strategically engineered decisions, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it is. So you've got to have the right job and the right income or the right wealth. You've got to ideally have the right partner and you have to have the research and the knowledge. And then of course, a bit of luck. If you had to pick three of the most pivotal decisions that you've made that have allowed you to live on a boat, what would those be? Well, having our own company
2: that we we don't have to go to an office. We've never had an office. We have 10 employees, right. roughly, and uh, nobody. everybody works from wherever they want. And so we started that in 2003.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a... Well, the first thing you mentioned, though, having the right partner, I think, is more important. Uh, yeah. I think if, you, if you're if you doing it um, in a situation where you're, you're with someone else, if you don't have the right partner, it's a non-starter. I think we both chose pretty well at that. Yeah. On top of that, when we created this company, I'd been working in regular corporate office jobs for over 20 years. And I wanted to create something where everybody could work from home or from wherever they wanted to be. And so we deliberately created our company that way in the first place. So it's kind of everyone telecommutes all the time. That makes a lot of this kind of a lifestyle possible.
2: Also, as an aside, we were talking about telecommuting the other day and how different it is when there are some people who telecommute and some people who don't. And in our company, everybody telecommutes. So there's no expectation of you know what were the things that we were talking yeah, I've about i've
0: worked in i've worked in companies before where some of the people will telecommute so you go into a meeting and there are five or six people in the meeting room and there's a conference phone in the middle of the table for those two people that had to <laughs> telecommute wow. and it's always kind of a hassle oh can they see the slides no they can't how do we and so there's always kind of if you're telecommuting you're kind of second class citizen and you're kind of annoying the rest of the team and so telecommuting kind of becomes a little bit of a bad thing in that environment I mean, it's a good thing for the person that's doing it if it enables them to, to work in a way they couldn't work otherwise. But overall, it's a little bit disruptive to the team. But what we found is when everybody on the team is telecommuting 100% of the time, there aren't two different classes of people. And it's a lot more convenient and smooth and flowy. Everybody's used to using all the tools that you use to telecommute. And so it's not a different thing anymore. It just becomes normal. And it's, and it's a pretty good normal.
1: When you started the company, though, did you sit down, the two of you, and say, okay, we already know each other well enough to know that we want to have this location-independent lifestyle, or we want to have this tiny space-living lifestyle? And maybe that wasn't even a thing then, but what did that conversation look like, and were you strategic in figuring out how to create a business that would enable that, or were there other things that you decided, and then all of a sudden this became, hey, look what we can do?
0: I feel like the... I feel
1: like the second one.
0: I feel like we came up with the idea of being location independent before we had the idea of actually living in a tiny space and moving around all the time. I feel like that came later.
2: We did the business first. Then we had a trip we took before we had our first Airstream. We were car camping for a month and running our business and publishing articles from a tent with a palm trio tethered to a laptop with a candle lantern you know and it was awesome but not it was terrible yeah (laughs) it was it was terrible and great and then we we would have to check into a hotel you know once a week or something to do our newsletter because we needed reliable internet and And a shower and a shower well yeah but a shower and, that has to do with picking the right partner who doesn't
1: have a strong olfactory sense. Right. right, right.
2: And, uh, and at some point we were at SF MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, and we saw a little Airstream Bambi, the little 16-foot one, and we went, oh my God, that's so cute. We could, look, it's got a little, we could work from that, you know, it'd be so much nicer than the tent. And so we started looking at Airstreams and that's what got us getting the first Airstream, which
1: got us into a lot more of the working while we were on the road. Did people think, at the time you started Electronic Engineering Journal, was that at the same time you started the blog, or did that come before the blog? We started EE Journal in 2003, right? and we got our first
2: Airstream in 2005, and we traded it in for a slightly bigger Airstream in
1: 2010, and that's when we started the blog. So the EE Journal started first.
0: Yeah, we ran it for about seven years before we started the blog.
1: When you started that, was it, I can't think back at that time, but it doesn't seem like there were a lot of online technical magazines. So did people think you were crazy?
0: Well, absolutely. Because I think we were the first in the electronics segment, the first all online trade publication or the first, you know, one that had any particular significance. Also, 2003 was a little bit after the dot-com crash. So starting anything that had a dot-com in it about that time was looked on as a kind of an insane move. But both things just worked out. We had an kind of a niche in the market in the electronics market where they needed a publication like ours doing it electronically worked out well so that just uh, several things came together for us that made that that take off and, and grow into a good business
1: all right before we get started into the boat stuff or even get further just just so we have an idea because I'm also curious about the blog and kind of how that started mm-hmm. but I want to bring listeners into the boat. So I, w- I want this this podcast to, or this episode rather, to take place in the boat. So describe the boat <laughs> and bring us all into the boat, and then we'll finish the conversation from there.
2: Okay, so the boat is a 34-foot Nordic Tug. It has a front stateroom that's a queen bed and, you know, not super spacious, but plenty comfy.
0: you barely a walk around on each side yeah, of the bed, yeah. sort of.
2: It's like a scoot up around, sort of. And then you, if you leave the stateroom, you walk up a few stairs. There's a there's a small head, bathroom head. You walk up a few stairs into the pilot house, which is where you run the boat from. You know, a couple of seats and you know your helm and stuff. And then you go down a few stairs into the salon, which has a L-shaped little dinette settee table thing and a little small galley with an espresso coffee maker for breakfast and a stove and a fridge and a freezer and a microwave. You know, it's plenty comfy. And then if you go out the back door, there's a little outdoor deck and there's a little up top deck. So it's pretty compact and pretty comfortable, but not huge. What about 200 square feet? I would say total.
0: In total, it's about 200 square feet. Okay,
2: where's your stuff? Where do you keep your stuff? There are little closets in the stateroom. Very small. Small closets in the stateroom. Um, but we've been aboard for five months and had stuff that we never wore. <laughs> we'll go we'll still overpack. We'll, we'll go to Alaska in the summer and overpack. And like, yeah, I had three pairs of pants and four shirts I never touched. So yeah, there's and, room enough.
0: but part of the secret to where do you put your stuff is you don't have stuff. we We try to pare down the extra pair of pants that we never wore all summer, notwithstanding. We try to pare <laughs> down to just the minimal amount of things that we absolutely need to live comfortably. And you can get by on a very small amount of stuff.
2: Okay. Which, is, which is why every
1: time we come home, we take boxes and boxes of stuff from our house to Goodwill. Right. <laughs> okay, that's what I wanted to ask you. So yeah. is downsizing an iterative process? Yes. Or do you strategically kind of figure it out? And what is something that you believed about downsizing that is completely not
2: true? I feel like it's very iterative. I think we started doing that the first time we came home from our very first long Airstream trip.
0: Right. What did we not use? Okay. All that stuff is out of here.
2: Right. My mom asked, well, what are you worried about somebody breaking into your house while you're gone? And I said, no. And if they do, I hope they start in the garage (laughs) because that'd be so great. I have everything I care about with me, you know, and that's what you realize after months on the road somewhere else in a small space is that you have everything you really care about. I mean, I'd be bummed about some of the art, but... Otherwise, you just realize more and more what you don't
1: need. Well, we won't give your address in this <laughs> podcast just because I don't want to test your <laughs> hypothesis but, or your claim. But just Leave the art. Take everything else. <laughs> take everything else. But is there something that you thought, there is no way I can live without, and maybe it's different for each of you, that you don't even miss that much?
0: I think the art is hard to do without because we like, we like being around art and having our art around. Also for me, mm-hmm exercise gear because I like yeah, to work out it's and it's there's a lot more of a temptation to be sedentary at least in terms of doing regular workouts on a boat or yeah. in the airstream.
2: so we've gotten little stair stepper a little you know small footprint things that you can kind of shove in a corner that we can use but it's not ideal you know that part I miss being able to make art there's not a lot of room on the boat to make art and right now mostly doing photography and so if i even if i had a small printer i started thinking like even if i had a small printer where i could make things you know i can make work on the
1: computer but it's not the same as having an object so i've been thinking about that lately is there an industry actually for creators who live in small spaces because it's becoming such a trend i'm surprised that there isn't and are there products that we can put in the show notes that you have used that might be small scaled down products but anything that comes to mind, you said the small exerciser or whatever.
2: Well, none of those that we've found have been super awesome enough that I'd really recommend. them. we still haven't found the ideal thing, you know, resistance bands, you know, <laughs> little little mini stair steppers or whatever, just to get your aerobics levels up. But as for making things, uh, for me, I like to make, they, they have those little small photo printers and it, it's just not the same. I don't want to make four by sixes. I want to make something on a more, one of my printers that I have at home.
1: So I'll just wait, do it when we get home. That's what usually happens. Is there anything that you got rid of that you think, damn, I wish I would not have gotten rid of that?
0: Um, I don't have anything I have regrets about Mm-mm. getting rid of. No, me neither. You know, a lot of my sort of creative stuff, well, creative technical stuff, was I used to build my own drones and I started flying drones when drones were sort of very first, well before well before they were becoming popular. And so I have at home a whole workshop with all the things where I normally, you know, do that kind of work. And I can't take that with me on the boat. And on our first boat trip to Alaska, we got part way up there and I, my drone crashed and got was destroyed. And I was really excited about using it for this whole trip up to Alaska to take pictures of whales and all kinds of things. And so we ended up buying a pre-made drone, which was really hard for me to get over <laughs> that I had to buy a pre-made drone and not use one that I built myself but I've gradually gotten over that, and I've got a really compact pre-made drone now, so I don't have to have a whole workshop with me on the boat for building and fixing and, and tuning and you all that, kind of that stuff. You
2: should say what that is too, because that's a fantastic drone for travel stuff. It's very small.
0: Oh yeah, I have a little DJI Mavic Pro that folds up to about the size of a water bottle,
2: and uh, the the bag for it is like a small purse. That's oh, great.
1: That's okay. So when you lost, okay, that's a good one. We'll throw that in the show notes. When you lost your drone, and I don't want to, you know. go too far away, drone out too far out there. But when you lost your drone, you put the camera on it or you send it out with a camera and all of a sudden, what happens? You stop seeing, how did you know what happened?
0: Um, Well, I had goggles that I was using that the goggles let you see what the drone is seeing. And in this case, it was flying along, just perfectly normal, straight and level, and suddenly the view you see is spiraling toward the ground and then all static. So it, <laughs> it had crashed on, it, had, it was flying along normal and it just fell out of the sky.
2: Well, that and allows you to sort of track where it fell, too. If you can see, if you can pause the spinning enough to see, okay, there's a log there, there's a whatever, right? That allowed us to go find it. It helped us recover
0: it. the debris, right? Yeah. Oh,
2: you could, oh, you
1: actually recovered the debris. Yeah. We yeah. did. Oh, that and was so sad.
0: Yeah, it was sad. <laughs>
1: When I think of the boating lifestyle, I think of yachts and massive sailboats or, you know, the power boats run by a staff or the old salty fisherman. But this lifestyle, this boating lifestyle is different. How would you describe the different boating subcultures? And, and I guess the follow on question is how different are those cultures from the airstream subculture?
2: Well, it seems to me like the way we do it, it feels very similar to the airstreaming
1: RV yeah, culture.
2: I would agree with that. Uh, and so, and I know that like within an RV culture, there are still different levels, you know, there's tent camping and, you know, backpacking, which is a little bit different. And then camper shell in the back of the truck, you know, they're all sort of different, but it all equalizes if you're in a campground, you know, you're all together, you know, so what if this person's camper cost $40,000 and this person's deluxe Airstream was a hundred, you know, they all—I don't know—it doesn't seem to be like there's such a great well. Or difference. this person
0: staying in a tent they got for thirty bucks. At, right,
2: right. People all seem to be, you know, they're all in a campground together. And boating, there might be there, there. No, not might. There's definitely a greater range. There's totally the scrappy sailor that paid, you know, nothing for his boat and just does the minimum to keep it going and lives aboard and anchors out only and doesn't spend time in marinas. Right. And then there's the huge yachty yachts that always have hired captains that take it up to Alaska and then the owner flies in and meets them. And there's, I mean, it's a huge range. And you're normally not, the scrappy sailor's normally not hanging with the billionaire 200 foot yacht guy.
0: Right. Except a lot of that's just, there are so few people that you bump into. It's Mm -hmm. so sparsely populated. um, Right. That whoever you happen to bump into in a particular cove on a particular day, you know, it's not...
2: Right, it's it's not. And I'm not saying there's like a solid line between those different things. I'm just saying it. You know, they they kind of have different goals. You know, the scrappy sailor is always going to be anchoring out and whatever, and we prefer anchoring out too. But we also really like going to a marina and being in a town and exploring the culture and whatever. And so, I don't know if I answered your question. You did,
1: but <laughs> but, but but you did. But describe your subculture. Ours, now. Yeah, it's more explorer. Right. It
2: feels more.
0: Yeah, I would say most of the people that we interact with a lot when we're boating are people that would rather spend more time in coves looking at wildlife.
2: Wildlife, nature, stuff like that.
0: Going um, up little streams to see the little lake that's up at the other end. Right, you
2: anchor somewhere and then you take the dinghy up to because it looks like on the chart there's a long, narrow place that you can go in that you wouldn't necessarily take your boat. But and I mean, that's super interesting to us. We do that almost every place we go if, it's, if there's an opportunity to go further explore in the dinghy. So... It's a lot of explorer mentality to me, right,
0: or even when you go to a town, you know walk around and see all the sites yeah. and sort of just engage, see what the people and the culture are like because they're almost mm-hmm. always a little bit different and in these small remote towns, a little bit quirky and so
1: are yeah. most of the people retired are most of the people doing working in like you guys are
2: in boating, most of the people are retired it's a much it's a it's a lot more it's a lot older crowd than the rV crowd typically,
0: yeah. A lot of that is because uh, you take a trip like we do up the Inside Passage from Washington to Alaska every year. And it takes around a month just to do the trip up there. Therefore, it takes around a month to get home. Once you get up there, you don't want to just turn around and come back. You obviously want to explore and enjoy it some. So you're talking about a trip that's a minimum of usually three months and usually more like four months or sometimes well, five months.
2: And you could do it faster if you had to, but why do it?
0: If you sure. Do it you fast. could hop but, I mean, on the airlines.
1: It, no, in I mean, even in the boat, you <laughs> could do it faster. But I mean, aren't you somewhat reliant on different weather conditions? I mean, you can't just go up there and know that you have to be the right. X place on a certain day because you could be stuck someplace isn't i mean right. isn't that the case yeah right
0: it's entirely possible to be at some place and you're waiting for the weather window to go across some entrance or something and you might have to wait several days some people wait a week sometimes for the weather to get right for them to do that um, but it's mostly retired people who have that kind of time available you know oh, okay i have three months to go take this trip or I have four months to go take this trip and it could vary a lot. And I can't necessarily say that I'll be at any particular place at any particular time. So it's, right. it's so, challenging for people that have work and responsibilities to do.
2: Yeah, that's what I was just going to say.
1: It's a lot more challenging when you have, when you have business trips you have to take. Well, is it realistic for a 30-something-year-old couple to, that have kids or want to have kids to ever even conceive of doing something like this? Well, we know people
2: who yeah, have kids. We know they, people they live kids. on their
1: sailboat. They have two small
2: children and the, that they raise and boat school. And, uh, you know, they do, they do it. They run a business. Yeah, and we've boat. known
0: several people in the Airstream community who live full-time in their Airstreams and have two and three kids, and they school them on the road. A lot of times when those kids have gotten into a, a little more into school, they will stop somewhere and let their kids be in a regular school. Um, but sometimes not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's certainly possible. You have to make some pretty big adaptations in your lifestyle. And I think especially for kids in terms of getting them socialized and, you know, have some peer group of people that are their usual friends. It's a little different than if you live in one place.
2: Well, and we know some people who have, there are multiple families who travel around in RVs. And who have kids. And so they will get together and sometimes travel together. So the kids have friends all around. And there's a a group of kids that play together, and then separate off and then meet back up. And so that takes care of a
1: lot of that sort of kids friends. I suppose on a boat, you could travel around and then during the school year, live in a marina. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think you had mentioned in an earlier conversation about the fact that not everyone who lives on a boat is location-independent,
0: Oh, sure. Some people live on a boat in the same marina all the time. You know, that's their permanent address. They just, they're in some town, but instead of having a regular street address, they live in the marina, and their boat maybe seldom moves. Or maybe they only take it out on weekends or on some little trips, but basically they use a boat the way a normal it's an person would use a house or an apartment. Yeah. a
1: floating apartment. Or it's a very practical consideration given climate change. Yeah. True, it will always be floating. (laughs) They'll just always be floating. ABF. ABF. So someone is listening to this conversation, and maybe they're in their 20s or 30s or 50s or 70s, and they're thinking, I want to do this. I think I want to do this. Or I could never do this, but I sure would love to do this. What is the first thing that you suggest that they do the very first practical thing
2: well I think for boating if you've never done it before you you kind of want to know that you're gonna like it before you plunk down a bunch of money for a boat and so there are places you can charter a boat uh, if you have you can learn they'll, what they'll teach you or they'll send you out with a captain if mm-hmm. you don't know how to how Do you know some place? for example have you do you know uh, of any place that does that there's one I think it's San Juan Charters in Anacortes or Bellingham, there's a yeah, couple of them. I think if there are a number of them and... around this area. If you just Google chartered boats, San Juan Islands has a lot of them because people want to go explore the San Juan Islands. Is it really expensive? Um, it can be. Yeah, yeah, it can be depending on the boat. Oh, there's another company in Seattle. Oh, dang it! Freedom Freedom boats. We met them at the boat show.
1: We could look that up. And yeah. th- why don't we look it up afterwards? we throw in the show notes. Okay, yeah. I think they're called freedom freedom boats
2: or freedom yachts or something. And they're smaller boats normally, but they're for people who don't want to own a boat, but they want to use a boat. And so it's like, a, it's like a timeshare sort of a thing where you can pay a certain monthly right, and I you think get a access. Personal. Right. And there are different kinds of boats. There's power boats. There's sailboats. So you don't have to just have one kind of boat, which is kind of great. How um, did you learn? We well <laughs> we, we had a little bit of experience. You Kevin had some experience sailing Hobies when he was growing up, and I my mom had a sailboat, but I wasn't really into sailing. And we started thinking about boats while we were on our Airstream in a marina campground, looking at boats, going, "Hey, boats! Why haven't we ever thought about boats?" And so then we started looking and got really interested in the whole sort of Airstreaming on the water idea, and about a month later we had a boat yeah. and then we hired, I found a captain who would, who we could hire and we hired this captain for three days to come on board and teach us all the stuff we needed to know how to do. What did you, where did you buy your boat? In Anacortes, Washington.
0: Yeah, we bought it from a dealer that had used it in a fractional ownership program. Oh right, then... wait,
2: that's another good thing. If somebody is not sure they want to have a boat, there are different fractional ownership type things where you can,
1: have a fourth of a boat, basically, and there's a calendar, so it's like a share of a boat. Um, do most it, places who sell those kinds of boats also provide that, or do you have to go separate to a separate place to find?
0: Uh, sometimes, it's a, in, in our case, it was the same place, mm-hmm. and in other cases, I think it's different places. I think the place we got ours isn't doing that anymore, but I think there are others. But yeah, we found a boat, you know, we, we went into it with this idea of an RV on the water, was kind of what we were looking for. So
2: we didn't want to share. because So wanted. we didn't
0: want to share because we knew we liked to... By this time, we'd done well, very long them. trips in the trailer. And so we had the idea that we wanted to take long trips on our own and not have to have it back by next Saturday when the next person gets it or something.
1: Well, wouldn't you share if someone wanted to have it for December and January?
0: We used it a lot in December and yeah, January.
1: What yeah. did you do with it in December and January? In December, last year, for New Year's, we went up to Princess
2: Louisa Inlet. And there were, you know, snow super windy. We had two feet of snow on the dock. We were the only ones there. We went with a a friend of ours, another boat. And so waterfalls were
0: frozen. It was just absolutely beautiful and a little bit scary in terms of the weather conditions. Yeah.
1: What was the most amazing thing you've ever experienced on the boat? Well, either being
2: surrounded by humpbacks that one time Mm -hmm. um, near uh, Piedus Bay in Alaska, or watching two grizzly bears Fighting—I'm not sure what they were doing, but fighting or
0: or mating or something yeah. on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> but growling—you
2: could hear them growling from the boat. It was so cool.
0: Yeah. For me, watching the watching stuff. the humpbacks bubble feeding was yeah. amazing, and yeah. just felt like I was so lucky to get to be there to see that at that moment. Yeah. And,
1: What's bubble feeding?
0: Um, it's this really interesting behavior that humpback whales do, and it's
1: so a
2: cooperative feeding. It's
0: a cooperative feeding behavior. So. Uh, just very quickly, one one humpback will go down and make noises to sort of scare the fish that they're going to eat into a certain area. Another one will swim in a circle and blow bubbles, and these bubbles rise up and make this kind of a cylinder that traps the fish inside, and then several of the whales will be swimming around and sort of making this, this bubble net that locks all these fish inside, and then other whales will come from the bottom and they basically open their mouths up and swim straight up. So they're just scooping all these fish out. And so when you're watching this, what you see is the water may be calm and then you'll see this big circle of bubbles appear somewhere and you, oh, okay, over there. They're gonna come up over there. Good,
2: because it lets you aim your camera. (laughs) Which lets you, if
0: you're fast, aim your camera. And then all of a sudden, a half a dozen to a dozen whales will just pop up out of the water with their mouths open going straight up at the same time. And it's just this giant eruption. Uh, it's, it's, amazing. it's it's amazing.
1: That sounds like something I must see before yeah. I die. Yeah. FYI, yeah. hint, hint, hint. <laughs> just... well,
0: these are enormous animals, right? They're up to, I think, 50 feet long and 50 tons. So they're just seeing a dozen or so of them suddenly just pop out of the water all at once is just unbelievable.
1: What do you have to do every day? What does your average day look like? You get up, you've got your work, you've got all the things with the boat, what is that? What does your average day look like? Well, our commute's a lot less than <laughs> if we had an office somewhere
2: else. Right, we're three
0: steps <laughs> right. from the from the stateroom up to the pilot house where my right. laptop is.
2: Right from bed. Kevin works up in the pilot house. We both try to stand most of the time while we're working, so his laptop is up in the pilot house. First, coffee happens normally, so we'll you know walk from bed to the coffee machine, make some coffee. What time? uh whenever you know it's hard alaska in the summer the out the daylight is just forever and so you'll wake up at three and you'll think oh my god it must be seven or eight and you look at the clock and it's three and so um, but it's already daylight it's already daylight do so, you go back to bed yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah um but so sometimes early sometimes late i don't know it doesn't matter really just get up whenever um up. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh get some coffee and then start work and then I'll
0: usually i usually grab my laptop, check all my email, yeah. fire off a few emails for the day, you know, if there's anything urgent. Then a lot of times I will jump in the dinghy and go check the crab traps because we usually drop crab traps the night before. How if far if away in crab. the dinghy
1: are the c- crab traps? Not very far. Not
0: very far. Within a quarter mile radius. So it's usually 10 or 15 minutes to go pull the crab traps and see if we got any crabs.
2: And I'll make breakfast. Or if we have a destination we need to get to, a little quicker or it's a long day or whatever, we'll sometimes take off and I'll make breakfast
1: underway. Yeah. Um, What will you make? I love the details and the weeds of people's routines. You know If we
2: have crab and we're in the mood for some crab, sometimes I will make a crab omelet or crab benedict, which is like a little pile of crab with some spinach and a, you know, poached egg or something over the top. Um, And hollandaise. And hollandaise. And... On days that it's quick, I'll just make some scrambled eggs or some breakfast tacos or stuff like that. Okay, so that we, you- we're good at with breakfast. We're like we do usually do later breakfast and earlier dinner. So breakfast oh. is usually a good breakfast.
0: But assuming this today, we're going to be underway. I'd come yeah. back from checking the crab traps. I'd put the dinghy back up on the davit so it's ready for the for the boat to go. And a lot of times, then we would pull up the anchor and start lay down. in our lay in our course for the day and start driving. And then underway, we might fix breakfast. It's so um, much more
2: chill than driving on the road, you know, because you're just, you've got a course, you know, whoever's at the helm is watching your course. You've got autopilot, you know, and it's not so like active like it is when you're driving. What
1: about weather? How do you, how does that weigh into or affect your urgency or affect well, your every, schedule?
0: Every night and every morning, we check the weather.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and then you just decide. I mean, usually we don't have a... If it's just us, we don't really have a schedule unless we have to be somewhere. If we have to be somewhere, we still normally have quite a few days of cushion. Like if you if you need to be somewhere for a business trip, say, you know, we usually Right. We'll try to get there a bit ahead of time. 2 or
0: 3 days. We'll we'll plan to be there 2 or 3 days early so that if we run into weather or something that stops us from getting there, I'll still be able to be there by the time my flight leaves to go on my trip.
1: Okay, so was there ever a time where your schedule didn't allow you to be perceived as the professionals that you needed to be? I think we've managed to fake it pretty good, but
2: we've, we've had a couple times where Kevin's been on a conference call and we had to like, that we got pretty much almost, oh, I'm trying to think of how to say that better, but we pretty much had to stop for whales. I mean, it was like dramatic. It was a dramatic, like a little kid runs out in front of the car kind of dr- drama Yeah, I was I you know? was on my
0: I was on my phone on a conference call having a business meeting and trying to act as if I were in an office somewhere <laughs> and uh you know we're, we're moseying along and suddenly just a bunch of humpback whales appear right on our bow and Laura grabs the throttle and pulls it back mm-hmm. to stop and mm-hmm. I mute my conference call right quick and so we
2: can kind of squeal about <laughs> the whales you know because oh my god they're right there <laughs>
1: And mm-hmm. have you ever, I mean, are there people where you say, okay, I'm sorry, this is really important. I know we're in this heavy duty negotiations, but I'm seeing yes. them bubble feed.
0: Yes. I, uh, some of the people I meet with have sort of caught on to the fact that I'm not sitting in, and so uh, I'm an editor, and so I'll be taking an editorial briefing, and I'll get on the line with people, and they'll be in their cubicles and wherever about to tell me about some new computer chip or something. And they'll say, okay, Kevin, before we get started, are you in Portland today or where exactly are you? Yeah, they're like, where
2: are you today? Just get it over Okay, well,
0: today we're in a cove in Alaska. We're anchored out. There are a couple of grizzly bears on the beach right now that I'm watching (laughs) as we talk. And I've got a halibut line in the
1: water. How are you? (laughs) That is so mean. That is so torturous. They ask. And they say, I am sitting next to Dilbert, my cubicle. (laughs) We just upgraded our cubicles from brown to gray. I'm really excited. Yeah, although a lot of them follow the blog,
2: so they kind of know what we're doing, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's hard to hide.
2: You know, it's also inspirational. You know, it's not just like, oh, God, what are they doing now? You know, it's cool. We've had a lot of people tell us that what we're doing really inspires them to change things about their lifestyle. And
1: I think that's great. Well, are there, I mean, clearly the lifestyle isn't for everyone. But there have got to be some universal takeaways that you would never have obtained or witnessed that people who are not gonna live on a boat could apply to their own lives. Do you have any that you could share?
0: Universal takeaways. Well, the, the comment we've gotten most often from people yeah. is you're so lucky to be able to do this. And we got that for years and years and years from when we were in the RV and traveling around while we were working and you know, to, to when we were being on the boat more recently. And we decided one time to write a blog post called It's Not Luck but this was tricky because we didn't want to make it seem condescending like, oh, no, you know, it's not luck. We're just really awesome or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, but the, the point was that if you make up your mind to have a lifestyle like this or, or like anything, just to pursue whatever thing it is you want to pursue, don't think that it's luck that someone else gets to do it. it because it's because something... that,
2: that can stop you from doing anything. If you think it's just luck, then it, then it doesn't give you any path to get there yourself. And right. so that's why we wrote that article is to try to say, no, it's not luck. You can do it too. We, it's not just that we are lucky. We, we worked hard. We made choices and there are compromises and sacrifices, but.
0: Well, right. And I think that's a big thing for whatever you want to do. There's some other things you're going to have to compromise or right. sacrifice. And people need to be, if they really want to pursue the life that they want to live, they need to, they need to be willing to make those choices and those compromises. You can't kind of. Keep doing things the old way, and also be doing things the new way.
1: Right, and number one, we'll put the link to that post. The, lucky the oh for sure, in the show <laughs> notes, so there so people can grab that. But I think about that a lot with people who say that I really want to do this. Yeah. If I could only do this, or you're so lucky to do this, and you know, people say, "Wow, I really want to be a rock star or an NBA basketball player," and they really don't want to be a rock star or an NBA basketball player. They want the accolades or they want the money or they want the moment on the court where they slam dunk or they do that rock solo and everyone screams and yells for them. But they don't want to be in a truck. They don't want to be practicing when their knee is, you know, in a brace. They don't want that's what it takes to. And same with this. I mean, I think when I'm listening to you, how amazing But I don't want to go out in the cold, freezing weather and fix a doohickey on the doohad. (laughs) And I don't want to go out on the dinghy when it's like snowy and go check for crabs.
2: Exactly. Sometimes it's really crappy weather and you go out to check the crab traps. And I think, I'm so glad he's doing that because I really don't want to.
1: Right. And I mean, what I really want is to be really good friends with people like you. So I am that way. It is pure Dumb luck. <laughs> that is it. Because then I can go and do that, and then say, "I'm cool. Bye bye." You know, right. that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, at-
0: yeah. That that you were mentioning how to get into boating. Having a friend with a boat is a good thing to have, right? Uh, because that's somebody that could sort of show you the ropes. And
1: what's the best way to get a friend with a boat?
0: Hang out at the marina.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to the marina. You walk up and down the marina, or their boat. Sh- you go to a boat show and you start asking questions. I mean, there are. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a really practical. I mean, I'm actually asking a practical question. Like, that would be something you could do. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: And you need to compliment the people's boats. You need to walk up and (laughs) say, that's a great boat. Tell me about it.
1: What would be a really good question that showed that you had an interest in boats that was the next level statement beyond, that's a really great boat?
2: I think asking for advice is a really good thing to do. You know, asking somebody how they got into, you know, say you wanted to get into boating or you thought you might, you know, talking to somebody who's who's doing it and asking them about it and just being curious about it seems like the
1: best way to get information and to meet people who are doing what you think you might want to be doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Have you been asked anything that really annoys you other than the comment, you're so lucky? No, I don't
0: think so. Uh Mm -hmm. We haven't gotten any particularly bad questions. We've gotten a lot of, you know, questions that are repeated. People wanting to go to Alaska, you know, is my boat big enough? Do I need a water maker? Do I need they build this thing into their mind about it being a really big and challenging trip and well, so they assume they need to have the the we best equipped that. yeah
2: i mean we bought our boat and we thought oh we went to the boat show and they have seminars and stuff about different places to go alaska vancouver island stuff like that and we thought oh well let's not even let's not even go to the alaska one because that's like years off for us <laughs> cuz we just bought a boat what are we going to alaska you don't do that and you just buy a boat but we had a friend who's told us, yeah, you could, you could do it actually. And so we started learning a little bit more and we did, we took our boat to Alaska. What? We bought our boat in September. We took it to Alaska in May. So wow. As, so within the first know, year, I mean, we boated all winter and learned as much as we could. And we went with a group, you know, a flotilla is a good way to do that. If you feel, if you don't have all of the experience you think you should have, the flotilla, a flotilla is a good way because there's a lot of support and you can learn a lot. But
1: It is a big, I mean, it's a big, it is a big thing. Yeah. What do you need that you did not know that you needed on the boat? I mean, I think also would be interesting for you to just, as part of this, weave in for people who might want to do this, what you guys do and a little bit about your flotilla. But before that, what do you need? What did you need that you did not realize that you needed?
0: I think we were pretty good. I think so too. Experience. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a catch. But 22. not
1: gadgets. Like you didn't need a better Wi-Fi, or I don't even know what you guys. How do you even have cell service, or or satellite, or what do you use to do your work um, when you're way out?
0: Yeah, we right. have a we have a cellular a cellular Wi-Fi router that's similar to the little MiFi or jetpack things that a lot of people have. Only it's kind of a heavier duty one of those, and that has SIM cards from multiple carriers. So we have T-Mobile and Verizon and AT and T. So if it can get any of those signals and it'll build us a Wi-Fi network on that.
2: And not everybody needs to have, if they're not trying to work or run a business, you know, you don't need to have that. Right.
0: And we have an antenna up on top of the mast and a booster that gets the signals to that to be better. So we get, we get a decent internet connection in most of the places we are, even in really remote areas. And that helps for trying to run a business from the boat.
1: Which one is it? Which one's better? Which one really has the better cell service?
0: It really depends. So in the lower 48 states, Mainly, we see Verizon having a little better coverage in remote areas. But T-Mobile's
2: although, kind of catching up.
0: T-Mobile's catching up fast. Going through Canada, T-Mobile at least, and these things change month to month, but going through Canada, T-Mobile roams to, I think, all of the major Canada carriers. So if you have a T-Mobile plan, going through Canada, if you can get any of the Canadian things, it still works with your T-Mobile plan and there's not any additional charge for being international. So in the Canada part of our journey T-Mobile is the best and then with once Ala- you're in
2: Alaska AT&T is it.
0: Yeah, really? Yeah. Almost no carrier mm-hmm. besides AT&T that has any coverage in Alaska at all. So it's kind of three different answers for three different places <laughs> there.
1: So it makes sense to have all three. Tell me about your flotilla because I think that there could be people listening who are starting to have a spark of a fantasy that you can help fulfill.
0: We have a business that we have with a partner called slowboat.com and one of the main things we do there is lead flotillas from Washington up to southeast Alaska and also around Vancouver Island and these are just people that have boats that are interested in making that trip but maybe haven't done it before or want to do it with a group and so we lead the group you know every night of the flotilla we'll talk to people about trip planning before the trip begins Every night of the flotilla, we all anchor or stay at the same place, and we get everybody together and we talk about the next day's route.
2: And- we'll give like weather, you know. We'll check the weather and give a weather briefing and talk about the route and where we're going and why. And it's just nice to have the backup. If you're, I mean, even if you have a lot of boating experience, going with a group is really fun because the social part of it can be super fun. We do a lot of happy hours and you know group dinghy excursions and whatever, and it's just great. It takes about I think our, our trip last year we did was four weeks from Roche Harbor on San Juan Island to Sitka, Alaska. And this year we'll do five weeks because people wanted a little bit more time. slows it down just a smidge. And we'll go from Roche Harbor to Juneau this year and the next year again to Sitka. And so it's five weeks of...
0: Once people get up, then they're on their own. They can explore around Southeast Alaska more and find their way back. And hopefully they left enough breadcrumbs to be able to
1: (laughs)
2: Hopefully we taught them well back. enough so that
1: they'll know how to get back. <laughs> and they can go to your site. Do you still have slots for this upcoming year or is it pretty much full? Uh, we have one, we still one or two have some slots, slots yeah.
2: for the Alaska trip. And then we're also doing two different trips around the outside of Vancouver Island. One that just does the outside and
1: one that circumnavigates Vancouver Island. And how much time would someone have to allot if they were interested in? I think that's about four weeks. Right. Yeah. yeah okay. Vancouver
0: Island itself is about 300 miles long. So it's a to a thousand mile trip to go around it you know just just straight around with no side trips.
1: So if someone had a boat now or Mm -hmm. had access to or had been boating for a long time they could be starting to plan for leaving on one of those Vancouver excursions for what what month? Uh, We'll do those in August and September July? July.
0: August and September 2018 will be the around Vancouver Island once And Alaska we're leaving in May 2018.
2: May 6th. Getting to
1: Juno sometime end of June. Right. Okay, exciting. How do you avoid getting on each other's nerves?
0: We don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but don't you have techniques that you, like, I would never have to, things that I would never have to consider with my Stephen? You know, and maybe you guys are just, I think you might actually, I have to We're confess, you're a little your, weird. I well, think. you're a little weird and a little bit nicer. But are there, I mean, don't you have any techniques for not getting on each other's nerves? No. I don't really
2: <laughs> be nice.
0: I, re- I don't
1: know. I know. We just try to be nice. I mean, we've been together a long time, but I,
2: re- I remember times in the airstream when it's, you know, talking about like having an argument and there's really nowhere to go. You can't just like, I'm going to be alone. And like, you know slam the curtains the <laughs> <laughs> slam the little soft velvet curtain between the bedroom and the kitchen you know? pull up
0: a dish towel between the two of <laughs> you just don't
2: look at me no, no. <laughs> don't, don't cross or I'm gonna pinch you no but I think living in a small space with with your partner just it makes it so you have to deal with yourself you know you just you're always having to deal with yourself and your and your issues you know and so you just learn ways to communicate better. It's
0: not easy. It's, it's taken not, us a lot yeah. of years to get
1: yeah. you know, We're really more chill, chill and now. comfortable mm-hmm. with it. sure. Mm-hmm. But what is something that you guys used to do if it took you a lot of years? Like if something bothered you, well, I'll, okay, I'll just tell you. When something bothers me, I usually just say it. But I think that if in a small space, I might have to let it simmer yes. and dissipate before just saying it. Yes. And then maybe pretty soon that would just be the way I would be. I don't know. Or
2: you kind of learn things to do to try to make yourself not be bothered. You know, if you need to go for a walk or if you need to go whatever. On the boat, you can't really go for a walk. (laughs) For some steps. You can go for some steps. You can go for some steps. If it's not raining, you can go out on the back deck, you know. But yeah, I think you just, we just get used to. Now, I don't know. We're in a groove now where we don't really have to deal with that kind of stuff much. The
1: guy that your business, your business partner, yep, Sam. Sam Landsman. I mean, he runs his own boat by himself, yes. right? Are there women who, as individuals, run their own boats? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you find that there is some any kind of gender bias that is interesting, annoying? (laughs) And can you share?
2: Absolutely. There's a huge gender bias in boating. Coming from a creative background, I don't and I know it's everywhere, but man, I've never had to deal with it quite as much as I have in the boating world. You know, the captain is always the man. And it's just super annoying. Like,
0: Well, you, you mainly drive our boat. I right. almost never drive it.
2: Yeah. And, and so it's even more annoying. You know, if I, if I didn't, if I were the cook, you know, and had the typical female roles, you know, I would probably not be bothered by it. But because I'm the one who's 90% at the helm and some guy walks up and looks for Kevin and goes, is the captain on board? And you're like, I'm the captain. God. You know, <laughs> but it's actually pretty fun when you dock somewhere like a boss and some crusty old fisherman comes over and goes, you know, wants to high five you or something. That's great. A damn woman. Damn you knew woman. That, yeah. And you're like, of course, of course. <laughs> Mostly that's it. It's just the yeah. you know, constant coming, assumption that coming man, into customs. Yeah. Coming into customs. They'll, they'll tell you, have the captain come up to the office with the paperwork and I go up to the office and they go oh, is there somebody still on board? And I say, yeah, my husband. And go, oh, and so he's the captain? <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm the captain. Didn't you tell me to come up? I, you Don't know. you want to repeat that question? <laughs> you look with your teeth <laughs> right, all yeah. like, this. like I try to be really friendly and nice because it's not, you know, it's just weird, though. I don't know.
1: What What's something that you know now that you would have never known? Kind of a universal truth, not like, how to put a husky and the dooski on the boat, but something you know now that you would have never known when, if you just lived in your house.
2: I don't know. My, my original sort of picture in my head as an answer to that question is the land, the expanse, especially once you get up into Southeast Alaska, the height of things. And the depth of things and the plethora of nature and wildlife and stuff. I mean, you know it because you watch National Geographic or whatever, but you don't know it until you're in the middle of all of it. And that maybe is the biggest thing for being on the boat. I
0: have a whole different take on the question. Okay, go. So the thing it's highlighted for me is that I feel like most people go through their lives thinking that the scarce commodity is money. Oh, I don't have enough money to do this. If I won the lottery or whatever, then I would have enough money to do this, that, and this that I've always wanted to do, but I don't have the money, so I can't. And that people kind of go through their lives thinking that money is the scarce commodity. And I think what you discover when you pare your life down to living in a small space with very few things and traveling is that it's time it's time that your own time that's the scarce commodity and that no matter how much money you have you still only have the same number of hours in a day the same number of days in a year that everyone else has and you know you could have enough money to have all the fancy boats and airplanes and campers and everything in the world but you still wouldn't find the time to actually use them and do the things and it really time is the missing thing it's not money you can always scrape things together and get around the money issue but you can't get around the time issue.
2: That's a better answer than mine.
1: I don't I, I actually actually I think that they work really together. well together. Because as you were talking Laura I was thinking about the vast expanse of everything also being a reflection of the insignificance of ourselves. Yeah. And then Yeah. The limited amount of time that we have is kind of the far end of the... I think those... Right. Actually, I kind of think the answers work really well together. And I would tell you if your answer sucks. (laughs) Okay, good.
2: (laughs) Well, they're both really true. I mean, I agree. You know, thinking about the time and thinking about the time that it takes to get up there and to, you know, or or out there or anywhere that you want to explore, it's so beneficial.
1: Well, I have... About three hours worth of questions, (laughs) but I want to ask you one more question in respect of your time, because I know that you don't have three hours for me to sit and ask you questions, and then I want to hit upon something that I call QCQs, Quick Curious Questions. So my question before the QCQs is, what advice would each of you give your 25-year-old self?
2: I think I always kind of had this in my head, so I would just say, you know, maybe don't get distracted. I always wanted to travel. I always had this sort of big picture of, oh, I wanted to learn five languages, be able to travel all over and communicate with whoever. And I think this is just a different, slightly different scenario, but I still had the same idea. So I would just say, you know, don't get distracted and do it a little quicker. If you've got a dream early on.
0: Yeah, I'm- Mine mine is related. Mine would be don't be afraid to take risks. Mm -hmm. I think my 25-year-old self was trying to be sure that the right amount of salary was coming in to pay all the bills and the budget was going to be this and all that. And I was a little bit afraid to take risks to do things that might have been more fun, more exciting, more led to things more like I've done in my my later life. And I, I think I would just tell myself, don't be afraid to take risks.
2: So I started out wanting to be an artist, so I was giving up on all, all that stuff from the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point.
1: <laughs> right. That's a good point, because yeah. I was going to ask you, what is something that you wish you would have risked? I know you can look back and say, I have no regrets, but just, you know. Um,
0: starting my own business. Yeah, going to work for a big company that has a 401k and health insurance and the daycare and all that is is great and secure and stable you know, until someday when they have a layoff. But it's it's a pretty predictable, stable, secure lifestyle and I always wanted to start my own business and I think I was just a little risk averse. I was afraid to dive in and trust myself and and go with it.
2: Well, and my add-on to that for myself was to not worry so much about what other people think. If you have something that you want to do
1: and it's not the normal thing and people are critical, don't worry about it. But how do you then know if if what you're embarking in is folly or just to the side of a really good idea or a really bad idea. You, you don't know. until you try it. That's it, why you, you might gotta crash take the and risk. burn. Yeah. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: All right. Okay. I'll, I'll borrow. I'll borrow that advice. And I would say that that <laughs> I'll borrow that as the advice I give to my 25 year old self. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah. What is the best under $100 purchase that you, each of you separately have made in the last six months?
0: Under one hundred dollars.
2: It's a hard question.
0: It is. I don't know if I bought anything in the last six months. I definitely have. (laughs) Mine's gonna be something dumb like a shirt.
1: (laughs) You You have to be specific about the shirt. It can't just be like a shirt.
0: Yeah, It's gonna be a merino wool (laughs) t-shirt, which was actually disgustingly close to a (laughs) hundred dollars for a t-shirt. But I love it. It's comfortable. It like
1: it was. I got it really discounted. It wasn't that expensive. Okay, to A marine, We're gonna put this in the show notes. So what is it? A merino oh, wool. Oh, well,
0: merino wool is great for especially it's for outdoor wear because and it,
1: travel. It's it
0: great. doesn't get all soaky wet if you sweat. It's kind of warm in the cold and cool in the warm and. It doesn't stay. well and it doesn't get stinky if you ever yeah. happen to wear it for more than one day and.
2: Which you definitely do when you're camping or boating. Definitely do when you're
0: camping or boating. It's so, great stuff. Yeah
2: i really don't know the answer to this
1: you buy so many good things under a hundred dollars i like know i queen. do but like
2: what's the best one yeah like
0: your breakfast sandwich maker the or breakfast you...
2: <laughs> sandwich maker was a surprisingly good purchase a breakfast sandwich maker okay i'll go with that it's a little hamilton beach you know here's the thing when we give our seminars on uh provisioning and outfitting your boat and one of the things we always say is not to, you know, if you're concerned about space, if you have a giant boat with endless storage, you don't care, but you don't want to have like the hot dog toaster, you know, the one, the, the, the single w- purpose, the single purpose appliance, you <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's got a hot dog and a bun that goes in the thing. And, and so we joke about that a lot. And here we are talking about the breakfast sandwich maker, which really just makes... I mean, I suppose... You You could could eat it for dinner. You could grill. You could make all kinds of sandwiches, but really it's like an English muffin, cheese, whatever if you have meat, and then an egg egg, and then the other top of the English muffin and you make it and it comes out and it's a little breakfast sandwich and it's great. It's almost like
1: 30 bucks.
0: You can recreate that (laughs) McDonald's experience no matter where you
1: are. Way healthier than McDonald's. With crappy that you've caught. (laughs) Alright, so now you can put up a billboard anywhere in the world and it can say anything. Where will it be and what will it say?
2: That feels like what our blog is. (laughs) I would say it would be in a city. And I would say... more people that way. Yeah, and I would say that it had something to do with dreaming big. What city? L.A. No, somewhere more. Well, I don't know. I don't know what city. I don't know. Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, somewhere where there's no water. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe. But that's just because that's my focus.
0: Trying to attract people to the water, is that the idea?
2: But then no, like, right, we talk, we, we, there's a place in Alaska that's awesome. It's called Ford's Terror. It's really, you can only get in there and exit once every 12 hours. Ford's Terror? Ford's Terror. Sounds scary. I know. And, and, you know, you read about it and you can only enter at high slack tide. And so, because there are rapids and overfalls, there's like a three foot little waterfall if it's at the wrong time which, you know, if it's coming towards you, you definitely can't get out. And so it's, you know, all the stuff you read about, you like, oh my God, and you have to stay, you have to position the stern of your boat at the waterfall and aim for a whatever degree thing to go in the entrance. And it's
0: uncharted. It's so the, uncharted. The,
2: and it's, it's... The
0: charts are all wrong about how you get in there. And so it's...
2: And so um, we've been in there now, I don't know how many times. dozens. dozen. A dozen. awesome. It's so great. And so we were helping people in one of our videos to tell them how to get in there. And last year we were in there last summer and there were seven boats in there. We're wow. Like, Oh
1: crap. What have we done? <laughs> typical, typical. There's a reason tourist spots are tourist yeah, spots and it's right. not because they suck. Yeah. All right. So don't put Ford's terror on no, the, your billboard. No.
2: I like to help people reach their dreams instead of just keeping them as dreams. And so, you know, if you can encourage somebody to follow that I think that's yeah awesome. and
0: start right now. Don't yeah, don't wait Don't wait till someday when you retire or right. someday when whatever start right now.
1: Oh, I like start right now, too mm-hmm. Again, I like the combination of your answers. No, why do you don't have to worry about <laughs> getting on each other's nerves? You guys are a really good couple. Where can people get a hold of you? They can find us at slowboat.com mm-hmm. um, Either Laura at slowboat.com
2: or Kevin at slowboat.com. Yep. We also have our 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 legacy travel blog that we started when we were airstreaming, but we still keep up while we're, while we're boating, and that's riveted-blog.com.
1: And or what about for the engineer people?
0: Oh, if, if someone happens to be an electronic engineer, then they can find us at eejournal.com uh, is our publication. And a lot of good information there if you happen to be designing chips or and if front and circuit boards. Or-
2: yeah, my photography portfolio is at domoled.com,
1: my last name. D-O-M-E-L-A. Perfect. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you on the boat. Thanks. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Laura Domela and Kevin Morris have strategically designed and live a location-independent lifestyle. They spend most of their time adventuring and working at sea. You can connect with them and enjoy their adventures at slowboat.com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities The Tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online, at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Apply Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.